For February 1st, 2010, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 83, Extravagaga. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. What's up, everybody? Uh, broadcasting live on Ustream for the first time, uh, and we'll post the link. Uh, we have the link on our Twitter feed and on our, our Facebook page. I am your host, Matthew Rather, scaring the you know dozen people or so who are watching this pilot program with a big picture of myself on the screen. Ah! <laughs> oh, no. oh, no. Your headset mic. Oh, I'm blinded really... by the paleness of your pasty face. Oh, <laughs> Actually, no. I turned on my desk lamp, like, and then t- <laughs> tilted it up, right? Tilted the gooseneck up so that I'm, I'm lit for the, uh, the thing. And man, am I lit, because I got a feeling that tonight's going to be a good night. So we're, d- we're trying this live. We're streaming it live on Ustream. Um, as we record, the Grammy Awards are going on, and, uh, and we also are here to overthink the uh, series finale of Dollhouse. But um, before we get to any of that, let's go to the panel and the question of the week. With, um, and chat room, feel free to join in on the, uh, on the question of the week. So uh, we're going to go with... Um, hmm, we're going to go with... Uh, what? Uh, if you could give a Grammy to anyone for anything, what would you give a Grammy award to them for? Uh, since all is right with the world, we are joined first by uh, Mr. Peter Fenzel. Hey, Pete. Woohoo! Hey, you know, it's really great to be out here streaming all over the place. I really wanted to stream it up on the internet for a long time, and... Uh, as long as I'm, I'm gushing forth this stream into the ether space, um, I just want to let everybody know that once you get started streaming, it's kind of hard to stop until you finished. So I hope nobody minds that we stream for a little while. Um, oh, question. So you asked if I could give a Grammy to anybody. Uh, I would give a Grammy to that guy with the plastic tubs. You know the guy with the plastic tubs? You've seen him. He stands over by, like, the old bank, like, not the bank that you actually go to, but the other bank that has the, the fee on it, and, like, nobody ever goes by that ATM vestibule. Oh, yeah, uh, that guy's awesome. Yeah, and he has, like, these tubs, and he plays them with sticks, right? And he, like, hits the tubs, and he plays, like, really intense percussive music, but you're not sure whether it's any good or not because it's just mostly characterized by energy. Um, I'd give him a Grammy, you know, and I, I'd encourage him to, like, put it under one of his tubs and to make some extra money with some free card Monty. Uh, <laughs> see if you can pick the Grammy. Because, you know, I think he needs to diversify his business and uh, because I feel like he contributes meaningfully to the musical landscape of this great land. Um, from sea to shining sea, uh, from the Azores to the Tetons uh, and, and whatnot, um, go, go America and the rest of the world, which is also awesome. There you go. That's my answer. I'm sticking to it. He, you know, I, I played drums for a lot of years, and I'm actually going to say that that guy's really good. Oh, he is? He is really good? Yeah. That's good, because I always thought he was really good, but I wondered whether he was just, like, really hardcore and, like, faking it until he made it. You know what I mean? But he's yeah. really good? He's not getting into Juilliard for percussion, but, like, he can play tubs with giant sticks for hours at a time. If nothing else, you have to respect the stamina. I feel like there, we should make a movie about a guy who tries to get into Juilliard playing tubs with giant sticks. And, uh, and it needs to star Julia Stiles as the guy playing the drums with giant sticks after fighting for, against diversity. I then he can I... be befriended by a benevolent white person. Like Julia Stiles. Exactly. Play that person as well. It'll be like a parent trap. <laughs> <laughs> I hear Joshua McNeil, but I am going to uh, pass over him. Uh, in favor of going... I put sheep's blood on the door. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad you said it before I did. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in favor of going to Mr. Mark Lee, uh, who is live at the Grammys. Mark, the crowd reaction must be absolutely wild there. What? Can, can you hear me? I'm recording yes, it live from the Grammys. Holy it's crap. utter pandemonium here. Let me tell you, I just saw Kanye West and Taylor Swift do a special duet on stage. Immediately following that, Lady Gaga interrupted their performance by turning into pure energy. She nearly <laughs> annihilated the whole place. It's pandemonium here, I tell you. Apparently she's dating Elton John also. 
I'm so confused. <laughs> Hold on a moment. Let me step into my overthinking it special uh, sound booth here to escape the deafening noise of the crowd. Oh, <laughs> that's better. There you go. Now, let me answer. The, the amazing qu- thing was that the crowd noise died minutes before you went into the sound booth. Your sound booth has amazing temporal properties. Yeah, we got to we have to get a uh, we have to get a way of you for you to monitor yourself. Yeah, I know. Okay, well, we, see, we're trying a lot of new things here with the in a variety of ways, as well as the me looping in the sound effects. I, know, if I, sound, I can't if I sound distracted. It's because we're trying a variety of new things here. <laughs> no, see, it wasn't a sound effect thing. It was that they actually played a rock and roll band at the Grammys, which is why everybody stopped cheering. So. Uh, <laughs> thing. Um, yeah, I, I watched the last hour of the Grammys before starting the show, and uh, there were some very entertaining moments, um, including Lenny Riefenstahl choreographing Beyonce's dancers. I'm not kidding. Wait, what? Um, yes. It was all militaristic and, and very uh, oh. primal willish. <laughs> gotcha, uh, gotcha. Yes, but to answer the question, um, I would give a Grammy to myself for best Terminator power ballad. I think I pretty much, <laughs> I pretty much own that category. That's all I, like, I actually do own it. I, don't, I, don't, I haven't heard any of their Terminator power ballads out there, so I'm pretty much the only candidate. Grammy and for that me. Means that, because you think, you'd think that if there were going to be any comp- competitors, they would come back from the future naked, and they would compete against you now rather than wait till later to write their Terminator power ballad. This so is very you, true as well. You're probably the best Terminator power ballad of all time. Or, past or, hey, how about, how about this? Maybe I came from the future back in time with my Terminator power ballad. Did you think about that? It would explain you why you're so that? fixated on Terminator all the time, I think. If it, you were actually would, were living, fact, yes. living the dream. <laughs> that, is, that, is a, that is an excellent explanation. <laughs> awesome. That I would rather distract the... Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just trying to root beer, guys. You know, I can't be, carry this by myself. It's going to be like this. It's going to be like this all night while I'm farting around with this uh, live streaming thing. Uh, I think we got the chat, chat room back up. I, I got it up and running anyway. Uh, now to Joshua McNeil. If you could give a Grammy to anyone for anything, what would it be? My grandfather, circa 1999, so that he could take the sort of Grammy thing and use it to replace his terrible, terrible hearing aid. You know, and like I think there was a character in Wild Wild West who had something along those lines, and uh, I feel it would have served Granddad better than the crappy plastic thing that just whistled all the time. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah, there's some banter for you. Uh, yep. <laughs> all right. Well, instead well, of podcasting, uh, we're going to give a series of short monologues this evening. <laughs> right. Yes. But, and also watch as Matt Rather stream, uh, surfs the web in the Ustream. In the, in the, <laughs> I'm trying to put like, relevant video on the feed for, for everyone. Wow. If you're listening to this, if you're one of the like 500 or 600 <laughs> people listening to this on audio during the week, this must be extremely boring for you. Uh, but stop me- talking down the podcast to the audience. All right? <laughs> <laughs> I need to put a moratorium on this. Our podcast is fine. It's very good. It's very funny. You don't have to feel so bad about it have a little confidence did lady gaga get where she was going by thinking man maybe i shouldn't wear this absurd outfit no <laughs> like you got to follow up and you got to believe in yourself believe in your i give you a grammy if it would make you believe in yourself but i don't think it would which is why i talked about the tub guy <laughs> which is the thing from tub girl i would not give tub girl <laughs> oh you went there i was thinking it but you went there uh okay yep. if i could give a grammy to anyone for anything i would give a grammy to frank geary for architecture because he's very <laughs> good at architecture. He has built That's some true. astonishing buildings all over the world. Uh, and if I truly could give a Grammy for anything at all, uh, I would give a Grammy for that. Well, we have those buildings by him up in Cambridge here at MIT, which are all crazy looking like. They have those crazy angles and are all curvy type. And they started leaking a few years ago because, like, the whole idea of them being crazy shaped was really attractive. But the whole point of the roofs not really being connected in a way that was conventional um, had certain drawbacks, such as water coming into them. Um, <laughs> such as not, the university not, not sue? Not providing the very basic functions of a building, which is to give shelter from the elements. Exactly, exactly. I know. I don't know if this was Frank Gehry's work or whether it was something that was done by the contractors or something along those lines. I mean, I'm sure somebody was sued. Somebody is always being sued, right? It's like Doctor Manhattan. It's like it never ends. Like you're always can see the legal process exists in four dimensional space, like simultaneously at all moments at once. So, <laughs> he, you and I both had the misfortune to live in architectural wonders during college, didn't we? Oh, yes, that's correct. I lived in a, uh, a, a dorm uh, designed by architect Eero Saarinen of the St. Louis Arch to resemble a Tuscan village. I believe you lived in the adjacent uh, building that also 
designed to look like a mirror image of that Tuscan village. So they were, you mean they had two different buildings with the same absurd uh, ar- architectural concept behind them? They did, they did. Oh, uh, and right. also they were built in such a way that there were no right angles in them, which is a, a really interesting way to design a building until you're living in a dorm room-sized space and can't put things like a bed in a corner. Yes, exactly. I also liked how one of the keys that I'm looking at a Tuscan village involved them having ivy all over the walls, but then the construction companies used herbicidal concrete, and there was no ivy, so they just looked like kind of, you know, megaliths. We were, we also, basically, also yeah. we spent years living in herbicidal buildings, which is probably not particularly healthy. <laughs> right, because the healthy fauna in your digestive tract, right, like or flora, the healthy flora in your digestive well, that's tract. Why I, yeah, that's why I eat Activa. It's because I want to have that flora in my... It's not because of Jamie Lee Curtis's undying sex appeal. It is because I want yogurt that makes me poop. That is why I eat Activa. Overthinking it, Activa. Yogurt that makes you poop. Hey, yeah, Send wouldn't it be money. great to get I them want as a sponsor? I, want this website. I think, you know what? If anybody is going to be a good place to market yogurt that causes the unmitigated issuance forth of, like, unregulated flow of stuff, then perhaps we're thinking you know, the people that should be... Aligned with that product. That is truly, so. uh, yeah. That is truly our. Um, that is truly our our goal here. Uh, all right. Well, hey, Mark, you wanna you wanna come in with some Grammy news since you're monitoring the the live feeds and whatnot for us. Um, pop musicians are getting awards. Holy crud! <laughs> no, it's. I have this live blog here. It's actually kind of difficult to follow. So I'm gonna dig up around news and uh, we'll report back later. Got it. <laughs> But, but, uh, oh, 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 oh. you got to give them something like you like like how about uh how about what i'm looking through this right now well, there's Can't a there's just... a yeah there's a there's a michael jackson uh tribute going on right now i think in 3d i'm not quite sure how that's supposed to work like if you don't have your 3d 3d glasses are they just uh, playing captain eo yeah <laughs> like if you don't have your 3d glasses does it, does it show up as blurry on your tv because that would kind of suck because i don't have 3d glasses handily you know sitting around waiting for the michael jackson thing to come on you're the worst nerd I've ever met. Yeah. Well, no. When I said see Avatar, we turn the glasses. And who knows? Put on the glasses. Put on the glasses. Uh. <laughs> oh yeah. man. No, the, the, the highlight that I that I saw earlier from from the from the Grammys. Um, well, there were several highlights. One really interesting moment was when Stephen Colbert pulls out an iPad from his coat pocket to pull up the list of nominees first for the category. That <laughs> I thought that was kind of cute. Was it real? Really cool. Oh yeah, oh yeah, it was real. Yeah, because like he was like it was real and it was spectacular. And the keyboard was like was shifting shape back and forth. You could tell. (laughs) Oh wow. I got that Pete. Thanks. I appreciate it, Josh. Josh world over here. (laughs) So the actual highlight from the Grammys so far this evening. I got to play a duet with Elton John. And let me tell you, uh, just from a sonic point of view, it sounded great. From uh, a visual point of view, they came out on a, I don't know what the best way to describe this thing is, a custom-built piano, which was uh, all one unit, and they were facing each other, and attached to the roof of the piano were sculpted arms popping up, and uh, it was a sight to behold, I gotta say. It was, it, it, the world changed mm. that, at that moment, the world what changed. What was the song? It was, I think, a, what's the name of her, of her song? It's like her, piano, her, her piano ballad. Um, S it starts with the uh, I can't remember what it's called, in, but they actually like, morphed it in. Yes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in the Jets. Yeah, no, they actually morphed in. They, they they mixed in Elton John lyrics as well too. Like, can you feel the love tonight? <laughs> oh, my, my, my. <laughs> it is where we are. That's awesome. That song is great because it answers the age old question of whether or not the love that is tonight can be felt by you, which is. It's really something I was always wondering. Um, Wait, does it does it ask question or just, is it simply just asks it? Does it not? That's true. You know what? I guess I guess I guess. Can you feel the love tonight? Is like Fight Club. It, like it poses questions, but it doesn't offer answers. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, no. Get me. Get, don't correct me if I'm wrong. But Lady Gaga is is kind of a an icon. Like, or let me say, gay men make up a large part of Lady Gaga's fan base. Is this correct? That's that's correct. They certainly so, so, are. Yeah, it's so like gay men across the across the land were like having this uh, incredible moment seeing Elton John, and Lady Gaga come out together, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe so. Yeah, I mean, supposedly. I don't know if they had the same one. moment when Elton John came out with Eminem, um, but probably maybe. I don't <laughs> that was my moment. That was your moment. Like, yes, finally, <laughs> my two worlds have collided: my world of wanting to wear ridiculous suits and my world of being an angry white guy. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> from my from my youth. 
Hey, yeah, speaking yeah. of uh, speaking of angry white guys, Joss Whedon must be pretty pissed off. <laughs> <laughs> nice segue. Uh, at the nice moment, segue. over the cancellation of his show Dollhouse, starring Eliza Dushku. Dushku. Yes, uh, and oh, I pause to say that I think the. Um, I think the chat room is not working, though I think the broadcast is is working. Can you guys see? Uh, can you guys see the video that's going? They can't tell no. you. The chat room is down. No, I'm talking about you. Are you guys? Looking, <laughs> are you guys looking at the? YouTube I just page? it just says to me overthinking a podcast. That's all it says. And now is it, now is it all just... white? No. No. Well, maybe no, it in is. a second. Uh, yes, it is now. Okay. Great. So the broadcast yeah. the broadcast is working. So if you're watching, you're yeah. watching. Uh, sorry about the chat room. Hey, Ustream isn't my website. Okay. Um, <laughs> Joss Whedon, Dollhouse. Let's, uh, let's get on it. Um, I am sad to see the show go, though uh, I agree with – with um, our guest, our guest writer John Eric uh, on Overthinking It last Friday uh, about some of the problems with Dollhouse. I think the same thing happened in the first and second season, where there were about half a dozen sort of boring or repetitive episodes towards the beginning of the season, and then uh, it really picked up and got interesting uh, towards the end of both seasons. The the Dushku of the week episodes at the beginning of the. Um, at the beginning of the first season, I thought like maybe it would have been better interspersed throughout the uh, the uh, throughout some of the mythology shows, and the um, the kind of slow moving stuff at the beginning of the second season was also kind of a drag. Uh, but you know, I think at the end it became like a really sort of exciting you know sci fi thriller, and uh, I don't know uh, who else is a who else is a watcher. Josh, you're a a loyal viewer, right? And a big Whedon fanboy, aren't you? Aren't you? I totally, 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 totally. Uh, no, I. And um, did we lose? Especially, Josh? but um, Josh, you got to start over. We lost you for a second. Hello. Yeah, we lost you for a second. Okay. Um, I thought I'm a big Whedon fan. I think his, his writing and his characterizations are great. Um, sometimes he has issues with plotting and pacing, uh, which which you just sort of described. Um, this show is really, really interesting uh, from an ideas perspective, from a sort of a, a science fiction perspective in the sense of what would happen with this technology? You know, let's 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 look into the future with, um, in this case, the the kind of convergence of brain computer, um, and that was great. Um, you're absolutely right. The characters didn't really come together until the end, when even characters that had been sort of annoying and minor through most of the show became fascinating. Topher, in particular, I thought was just a really great character by the end of it. Um, as he was someone that hated throughout. Um, who is Topher? So, I, having not watched the show, um, who is Topher? <laughs> well, what I'm going to do is download the scripts for the first season and just read them for the next couple of Good, hours. Can you do that, please? Yeah. No, that's all right. Yeah. Uh, to- Topher, is a, to- Topher is a, a sort of a the archetypal nerdy genius character who actually wow. figures out he, – he designs the technology that allows them to go in and replace people's personalities. Ah. Um, yeah, I'm actually just asking because I want to know which one uh, Tamo Peniket is. That is, what is his name? Uh, Ballard. Paul, Paul Ballard. Yes. Okay. All right. I'll listen for that. I haven't watched the show, I, I, so I just want to know about Tamo. So I'll let you guys keep talking, and I'll, I'll jump in at Tamo related moments. <laughs> so he was kind of one dimensional. <laughs> I, I gotta say. Yes. Well, I know and right on point. Tamo doing his thing. <laughs> <laughs> I know, uh, I know, Pete. You liked him in Battlestar. Yes, of course, but not because of his multiple dimensions. <laughs> yeah, he, he was kind of a one-speed bike there too, wasn't he? Exactly. So many characters, so many actors can play like more than one aspect of humanity at once. I mean, why do I want to watch that? I want something new. No, anyway, continue, continue. I feel like you were you were in the midst of a really great analysis, and I jumped in to break it up because I wanted attention. And as much as that's an admirable quality in a podcaster, I don't think it helps us get to the point. <laughs> and that's really what our audience wants, is for us to get to the point. So continue. <laughs> I have absolutely no idea what I was talking about now. Um, the, uh, oh, and there may be spoilers. So, there may be dollhouse spoilers in the course of the oh, yeah, I'm going to spoil, spoil the whole thing. Um, okay, good. 
Yeah, Eliza Dushku has been dead the whole time. The <laughs> the whole thing is a dream of an eight year old boy. Yes. Now, um, the for me, the there were a couple of really interesting sort of themes that it explored, which are sort of you know where does your identity come from? Because right. these bodies are being you know having different personalities put on them and, and taken away. Right. But then this one character is able to sort of develop a personality despite that. There's it becomes clear there's something underneath a kind of core that even if it's someone like rewriting your brain, it's still there. Um, which is interesting. It's, it's almost sort of it, it's sort of a a Whedon's take on the soul, right? Uh, which is something he's certainly written about in past shows. Um, so that was, that was an interesting take on it. And I would have liked to see another season or two of it though. I agree. There was sort of the, if they had gotten rid of some of that boring um, monster of the week type stuff and just yeah. gone with the, gone with this, it could have been great, but well, it was as it show. was like two, yeah. two seasons of interesting television. I thought so. well, it was two half seasons of interesting television. I thought, for what it's worth, the um, the the latter half of both seasons was for me interesting. I mean, God, there are, there are a lot of avenues we could go down here, right? Like the um, the balancing of the episodic versus the serialized storytelling is something that I've I have written about in the comments on overthinking it, and I, I don't need to rehash here, except to say that it was mishandled, right? Um, kind of on the model of the X Files. You know, where there are a lot of Monster of the Week episodes and then you get sort of rewarded with one or two mythology episodes. Whereas the interesting thing here was not the, uh, hey, how many different kind of like, uh, how many different kind of active engagements can we come up with? Like, oh, there's the prostitute one, then there's the, you know, hunting buddy one or the, you know, the most dangerous game kind of one or the... um, you know the the uh, hostage negotiator one and and things like this. That's not really where it is. It's in it's in these questions. I mean, I I thought uh, I related it a lot to the use of like psychotropic drugs in children, for example, or like as a as a study aid, right? Like people, uh, what do they chop up Ritalin and snort it or something in college to to keep themselves up for uh, for finals or things like this, or or use um, oh god, is it called Adderall? Is that the one where it like is supposed to make you I don't know more alert? Let's ask our listeners. Yeah. Well, no, if the chat room not, worked. Not yeah. Actually, uh, you know what? So I'm getting chats from one person. Nice. Which is Tony with an I who just commented that I think the episodic nature was okay, but the constant genre hopping was kind of annoying. Which it's interesting because when the show was first being promoted, I thought that was what was going to be really neat because Whedon is one of the best sort of deconstructors of genre out there. And this was a show that was going to let him play with a different one every week. Um, and right. I was excited to sort of see him do the hostage negotiator one or, you know, I thought he could do some interesting stuff with it. Uh, didn't at all. So I'm agreeing actually with Tony, but <laughs> I thought that was a great promise for the show. It turned into something completely different than that, which was in and of itself, uh, you know, interesting to a very few people, it turned out. <laughs> yeah, the ratings were pretty awful. And I mean, I don't know. It didn't help that they put it out with the trash on uh, on Friday night, right? Well, the, yes. the, the famous Friday night sci-fi channel slot of time slot of death, which uh, Terminator Sarah Connor Chronicles previously inhabited, right? Yeah, but Battlestar Galactica was on that slot, and it did fine. So maybe it's just that the, that on cable, though, right? Sucked. Yeah, the um, yeah. the the standard for cable is is very different from uh, fair. Uh, the standard for cable is very different for than the standard for broadcast, where it's um. Oh, hey, I'm back in the chat room. Uh, we're right, like a show with with five to six million viewers, which would be a monster hit on cable, would get, um, would get uh, uh, you know, canceled. And Dollhouse only did, I think, a million, a million five every night. Genre so, hopping. Just, huh. Sorry, just, just briefly on the time slot thing. We don't have to stay too long on this. Like, is that really where you put shows to die? Or what, what can be successful on a Friday night time slot like that? X-Files? Or no, that was Sunday night. Yeah. Right. Um, I mean, Urkel. Oh, was that whole... <laughs> was that whole lineup a Friday night lineup? 
What do you mean was that whole lineup a Friday Night Lineup? <laughs> it was TGIF, wasn't it? Oh, right, of course. Mercury? Like, for Christ's sake, yes, it was a Friday Night Lineup. <laughs> it was TGIF. <laughs> was on Friday. Sorry, yes. apparently I'm on drugs. Or I'm in need of... I'm in need <laughs> no, of... Mercury. Uh, I'm in need of some... Mercury. Or you went outside as a child. One of the two. <laughs> yeah, I know. No, did I certainly... I certainly did not do that. But I wasn't... You know, I was reading, like, the Swiss Family Robinson or something. The only videos allowed in my house were, were Disney videos. Right, 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 right. Anyway, it's still true. Weirdly, <laughs> you you weren't allowed to watch Miller Boyette Productions. That was not <laughs> part of uh, part of the the stuff that you had to. I mean, actually, I have no. Honestly, to be perfectly honest, I have no idea whether any of those shows were actually successful or not. Like, as far as I'm concerned, they're some of the most successful shows of all time. But for all I know, they were always on the brink of cancellation. Like, do do I have any conception of whether things like like was Perfect Strangers considered a successful television show? Like, I have no idea. Like, how about Step by Step? I don't know. It's like burned into my brain. I don't know whether it's true or not. Like, does does uh, Jaleel White deserve to be recognized as an all time TV legend? Like, I think so, but maybe nobody ever watched it except for like some of everybody that I know, which is kind of a weird contradiction. But except for rather, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, man. The world is crazy. All the metrics we have now for measuring things, we don't have them to measure our memories. We need to go back to the future. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I can't rant about dollhouse because I haven't watched it, so I'm trying to rant about other stuff. She just rant I... about dollhouses, Pete, and how they're creepy. <laughs> oh. And oh, you want me <laughs> to talk about I have four sisters. Strangely you want me to talk expensive. about dollhouses? <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> um, the, uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know about that. Uh, well, genre hopping. I I guess I think it was just une I mean just kind of unevenness all all around. But I think the idea of like custom many of the uh many of the characters end the series with custom upgrades to their personalities, right? That are I don't know less than uh you know, less than savory from the point from the, the biological purist point of view. Well actually this episode the last episode features a a new group of characters who have used this tech to be able to actually have skills on thumb drives that they literally plug into their heads and can just use, Yeah, which is sort of what I was writing about in my post last week about instant knowledge and, and cost-free knowledge. Mm. Um, these folks... The cost for them was that it was an addiction, that they were, they were unwilling to go like, to, to see a better world because they would lose this unique ability. Um, so they, it sort of cost them their humanity in this instance. It was just a brief moment, but, um, you know, I felt really smart having predicted it a week ago. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, what do you think of that? I mean, like, give it, given the opportunity, I guess we'd all sort of jump at the opportunity to do something like that given the chance. No, this is the. I also realized this is the basis for things like the Discovery Channel. That instead of actually learning science, we can just watch a half an hour episode of the Discovery Channel and feel intelligent. I don't know, man. I mean, back before, uh, there's a great Onion article about it this week about Punkin Chunkin and how, like, the Science Channel has decided to stop dumbing down science and won't go any farther than Punkin Chunkin. Um, but I remember back in the day when I used to watch the Learning Channel and there'd be, like, a whole thing about, like, you know, quantum physics that i'd really enjoy or like rel- like relativity or like like nova was always really interesting scientific scientific american frontiers with alan alda i always found like legitimately educational i mean i think a lot of science oriented tv is actually teaches you stuff right i mean i don't know maybe the discovery channel maybe if you watch the animals doing it there's like that joke that it's not interesting but um I don't know. I mean, I guess I, I feel like I've learned things from Mythbusters. I know we can criticize the rigor of their scientific approach, but I do think that there is something educational going on there. Um, Certainly, but the, the for many people, that's the extent of it. They're never going to take that any further. I mean, I think especially when we were kids, that sort of programming was designed to inspire you to go learn more. Mm. Yeah, I mean, and I now the, yeah, it's it's yeah. not that really anymore. I, the History Channel is particularly egregious on this. Like they want you to like you watch the episode and then you you know all that you need to know about the Eastern Front, right, right, right. You know, and there's not that sort of like go find out more. There's not. Would that you like to know more? Yeah. <laughs> 
Right, right, right. Well, I do think that there is a sub. There is a couple different sub sub genres of science programming that are educational on their own, but a lot of them are pretty boring if you're not interested in science. I guess. Like, did you ever watch the the sort of uh, public television stuff that was after the kid shows where they would try to teach adults how to read? Like, you ever watch that show? Like, that show was pretty fascinating. Where it was, it was like it was really boring. And it was like they trying to like, and you could tell as a child, it was so such a daunting and troubling idea. This notion that there were adults out there who didn't know how to read, um, and this was a show that was attempting to like increase literacy. Um, and they would the other words would come in and they float off screen and on screen like it was Sesame Street, except it was bereft of any sort of joy. Um, very diverse uh, group of people on it to I think reflect an audience that was across, cut across ethnic groups and social groups. Um, but I think I mean there is legitimately I guess it just doesn't get the the attention that stuff that is you know less actively scientific like Brainiac and whatnot is going to get. Um, I don't know. This relates to something that I, I've been talking about on the podcast before, which is that the um, like the internet uh, having the the. Um there are two levels of knowledge, right? There's like one's one's uh, well. There are two levels of knowledge that I'm going to talk about right now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there are probably many more levels of knowledge. That's going to exemplify one of them, isn't it? Right. Carnal yeah. knowledge. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, there's uh, the knowledge that you have and, the, um, and your perception of the knowledge that you have. Right? That is to say, the internet gives us a, a, a very shallow pool that's you know a mile wide and an inch deep of knowledge of various subjects, but it makes us all feel like we're the world's expert on such and such because we've read the Wikipedia page, you know, and right. that, that like you really don't even read my articles, do you, Matt? <laughs> <laughs> I have uh, I have John Parrish and Mark Lee for that. <laughs> Mark, are you still with us? Oh, yeah, I'm here. I'm just uh, intently, you know, getting bits and pieces of Grammy news here. Shocking, shocking news here. I have the report, actually. Uh, Earlier in the show, they said that they were doing a vote, a poll, to see which song Bon Jovi was going to play. There were three choices. (laughs) There were three choices. Um, It's my life, always, and living on a prayer. Shocking result. Nobody saw this coming. Living on a prayer won the vote. I don't believe it. I just, I just, I don't know what to say. Speechless, speechless. All right, well, you need to play an obscure B side and uh, just mess a, a reggae guys. version of a bed of roses, perhaps. He's yeah, got if I was your mother from the Keep the Faith album, which is the creepiest song ever. I hate that song, and I love Bon Jovi, so don't get me wrong. Um, yes, that's anyway. that's the Grammy update that you all wanted. So, uh, all right. return to the dollhouses. <laughs> uh, yeah. Why did, did it, am I forgetting something from your article, Josh? Well, he said that in the article. Yeah, he said that thing about Wikipedia that you just said. You were pretty much quoting him word for word. It's well, as if I you said had it this before. I said it before on the podcast, <laughs> you know, and stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was actually talking about. Uh, I think I was talking about something like box office numbers, right? Right. And uh, mm-hmm. and and the way that the internet has made us all like experts on the on the entertainment industry, and how to me this is this kind of uh, you know debases real knowledge. Um, mm. Real knowledge being, I suppose, what real knowledge being the hard the hard won knowledge from your Malcolm Gladwell approved ten thousand hours of uh, of hard hard work. Um, Right. So is the, you know, I don't know. I think that this uh, easily accessible knowledge makes um, makes uh, the, the incidence of douchebaggery a lot higher, right? Oh, it was there before. It was just less well-informed. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, people thought, said that they knew stuff, right? Didn't everybody know trivia buffs back in the day? People like Cliff Clavin, watch Cheers and see what Cliff Clavin does with his knowledge. He's a, he used Wikipedia before it was cool. Nobody would watch Cheers. It was a television show. It was somewhat mildly popular. <laughs> was it? Was it on Fridays? Uh, yes. In fact, it was. A, no, it wasn't on Fridays. No, it was I on did. Thursdays. I have a picture. Uh, yeah. I doubt it was. I doubt it was on Fridays. Okay, so then another... you know you could Wikipedia then. Oh, <laughs> I'm raw dogging it tonight, man. <laughs> no Wikipedia for me. <laughs> <laughs> Another 
feels oh, sick. Oh, dear. Wow. But <laughs> <laughs> um, I think another thing that Dollhouse talked about was the, the, uh, the limits of agency. That is to say, like, here were these, you know, here were these people who, um, uh, here were these people who supposedly had consented, at least the normal ones. Of course, there were, there we. It was all revealed to be a sinister conspiracy that abducted people and, you know, forced them into this this, uh, this situation in the dollhouse, um, pretty much at will. Uh, of course, that was revealed later on because you can't have a television show without a sinister conspiracy. But uh, at the beginning, the idea was that people had volunteered to give up five years of their life in in exchange for riches beyond the dreams of avarice. Um, Right. And uh, and then they, you know, they would not be harmed physically during during this time. And they their body would be returned to them at the end of five years, probably in better shape than ever. And they would have some kind of ridiculous trust fund set up for them and, and things like this. And and we only saw one person ever get out of the life like that. It didn't work out well, um, you know. And and so uh, what can you what can you sign away with a contract, right? Supposingly, supposing that such a um, uh, such a thing could exist, is it ethical to sign yourself away for you know uh, for a uh, a period of time? This is a show that I. This is a question that I think the show raised but didn't really answer. Mm. Well, one of the things that's often talked about it is that it's sort of unlike Whedon's previous work. This one was very much set today and you know it wasn't a high school thing it was it was sort of in and around the world as we live in it right now you could sort of imagine it being next door and in that way it's instead of commenting on being a teenager or commenting on sort of the other things he has it was commenting on modern life and in a lot of ways we do that right you take the crappy job and you sign yourself away for eight hours so that Afterwards, you know, once a year you can go on a cruise uh, to Haiti. But the uh, – so he's sort of like it, – it, and it really – I think one of the reasons it did jive with a lot of fans is that it it did sort of make you think about that a little bit and be like, do I want to – am I willing to give up? Because it's like their best years too. It's when they're young and when they're healthy and a lot of the viewers are, you know – probably sneaking a chance and watching it on Hulu while they're at some crappy cubicle job. Um, I, I certainly watched a couple episodes uh, illicitly in that way. Mm. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, to get, to get to the, the question, it's an important question in philosophy, right? Like, uh, do you have, do you have the rights to give away your rights? Right. Is, is the question that we're talking about. And I mean, I think that there are certain philosophical schools that kind of require you to have it because they say that you should have the freedom to do anything that you want. Um, I mean, I think that uh, there's one example. Was it Robert or Richard Posner? Which Posner? Um, uh, talked about this in, in a piece that we always used to make fun of back when I lived with John, where he talked about there was like an economic argument for allowing people to buy licenses that let allow other people to rape them. Um, as like a, if you, there's like a price that you can put on that, right? So like the idea is that this is something you're not allowed to sign away, like the, the right to be murdered. You can't say it's okay for you to murder me, right? Um, right. Like, like it's not okay for you to assault me. Um, that, that the, in order to support the underpinning of that very idea, um, you have to make exceptions to this notion that you contracts are capable of doing anything and that people have unrestricted ability to you know, say or do whatever they want. And I think that you also have to admit to a certain capacity for coercion, right, and the possibility of coercion, um, which a lot of free choice theories don't like to acknowledge. They say, well, you made your bed, you lie in it. They don't think about the idea that you might be forced to do it. Right, so so that's kind of like the the hinge that it turns on. I don't think there's a good solution for people who want to maintain this idea that um, that like everything should be signable and everything that it, everything you should be able to do whatever you want, and you have no larger relationship with the requirements of society and in terms of obligation or any of this stuff. Um, I don't know. I mean, what do you guys think about that? Do you have any thoughts about that particular idea or or not really? Well, first of all, you can't assault me. So stop trying. Me, you know? <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, look, I, I, I think it like it doesn't take a uh, it doesn't take a Peter Singer right to tell you that there are certain things that you can't sign away. 
Well, I mean, you, you say that that's as if it's a foregone conclusion, but that's not necessarily a foregone conclusion. Like, why is that the case? Well, yeah, like, no, exa- exactly. It's, it, seems to be, yeah. it seems to be my sort of knee-jerk response that it is, uh, that yeah. it is the, the truth. But that, that will not do on a website called, uh, um, called Overthinking It, will it? I mean, is, yeah. it, is it Kantian, right? Is it like because if we generalize that principle, then we would be left with very little society? Left? Uh, I don't think it's necessarily. I think the the, kin, the cru, cru, crux of it isn't really Kantian because you're talking more about a rights issue, and, and rights aren't really um, right. Rights are necessary restrictions on people's freedoms, uh, which usually are part of more consequentialist ethical systems. Um, like, so you have to if you're not operating from a consequentialist ethical system, there doesn't seem to be much of a reason for people to have rights because um, rights have a sort of intrinsic assumption that you will be doing everything other than this, that your ethical system is sort of um, outlines the things that you can't do and leaves everything else, you know, you can do whatever you want. Um, sort of, you know what I mean? Like, uh, provided the consequences are appropriate. I mean, at, at any rate, it, it's more of a sort of English uh, kind of ph- philosophical construct. I mean, I, I, might be, I might be off on that, but I'm pretty sure that it doesn't really have much to do with Kant. I think it has more to do with guys like John Stuart Mill and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. The idea that rights-based, is rights-based utilitarianism just begging the question on regular utilitarianism because you establish rights because they have consequentialist effects, or are you willing to make actual meaningful sacrifices in your system of exchanges and, and freedoms uh, and liberalism to protect certain things, and if so, then why? Is it just convention uh, and so on and so forth? Well, I mean, you could say that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you could say that the law should protect people from doing these things to themselves. But then, in the same token, in the Kantian system, it raises a larger question of like, what is the role of law in determining how people should be allocating these resources at all, or making these decisions at all? And does the law, the moral law, really tell you that people um, that we should even be asking this question? You know what I mean? Like, like people should be making these kinds of deals for money. Um, that doesn't seem to be something that you would want to do anyway, unless there's like a really powerful um, good that's being served by it. So by, I don't know. By allocating well, I mean, resources to bring to... that to to bring that to the sort of uh, level of where we are today. That this is the debate about prostitution, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, which is uh, the show's been sort of talked about from a feminist perspective, been talked about as being both pro and anti prostitution, depending right. on sort of how you read it, because that's you know basically what we're talking about here that um the another one that sort of hinted at in the show that that i always found interesting was these people are essentially killing themselves which is another thing we have a law against which has always struck me as a bit absurd Mm. um but i don't know america seems to have sort of decided on this case well just because they don't want to watch the show or no no no, i'm I'm talking for legally Oh yeah, yeah. Like, well, Kant would, you know. Kant would have a big problem with Dollhouse because people are giving up their um, their their sort of freedom as as uh, as as agents, right? And their agency is going away, and then that's a huge crime against the moral law. Well, um, this is, I mean, this is the this always struck me even more than sort of gender things or, or questions of whether this constitutes rape or not. This this struck me as where the real. Uh, metaphysical action was with Dollhouse was in in questions of agency. I mean, what does it you, what does it mean to have agency? What are the limits on one's own agency, especially as regards one's sort of disposition of oneself, and um, and uh, what what are kind of some of the illusory aspects of agency that we we may believe that we have, but we don't we don't actually have. And that you know, this is I think this is I think the interesting show that we never quite got. Though there were some moments where it was gestured at. Mm. Every time you said the word agency this just then, I was picturing Ari Gold. <laughs> <laughs> which which uh, really they just tug it out, bitch, with the uh, the exactly massive, the massive conspiracy. But the limits of agency and all that, yeah, it was uh, it was an interesting way to look at that paragraph. Yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. Um, you know, I mean the. Uh, well, the idea that um, right, the idea that these personalities that are programmed in a certain way, you know, fall in love authentically, like that is to say, they they produce all the, they produce all the, um, <laughs> they produce all the 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 symptoms of love, the physical symptoms, so that even the person, even the doll, right, believes that they're falling in love with the the John, uh, who has hired them for this this particular encounter. Um, 
And uh, I, th- I think that that one of the things one of the things that's being suggested is that the um, the actual experience of love in the non you know in the non coerced universe actually may be more like that, or our experience of of, uh, of a lot of things. Like, ha- uh, to what extent have we actually chosen the things that we believe, and to what extent is it? In fact, a result of something like like programming, you know, social programming, right? Um, mm-hmm. This is the, you know, this this is the interesting sci-fi area that that to me the show never uh, never really got into. Also, uh, Ari Gold and his gay assistant. <laughs> the um, one of the interesting episodes early on in the first season, and I think it may have been the first sort of hint that uh, the Eliza Dushku character was different, was when her character gets imprinted with love for a child. Um, I forget the exact scenario, but I think like the father's, the mother had died, so the father hired this doll to sort of ensure that his child was getting that maternal affection, yeah. if I remember correctly. Yeah. But, but that that was so powerful that it actually overcame her programming and um, as they like people they tried to take the kid away and, and it, that was sort of the first time that broke down which I thought was an interesting comment like the romantic love didn't do it but the love of mother for daughter was actually stronger than this technology yeah mm. you know there's I was, something like, interesting going on in the chat window are you guys seeing this now we've got a whole discussion of African literature over here that I feel like we may want to, to oh, really? bring out Bring out of the darkness and 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 speak loud. That's racist. Why would you say that the conversation about African literature is happening in the darkness? Well, we were talking we were talking about the book Heart of Darkness. Oh, uh, right. Actually, um, made a I actually I, I kind of don't want to read a lot of this stuff um, loud because I, I feel like we'd get in trouble with the uh, I feel like we get in trouble with the, anyone with any sort of human sensitivities on the internet. Though I mean, I realize that does uh, exclude a lot of um, a lot of internet users. Uh, there's I've been reading. I'm sort of interested, and so I watched the the uh, Discovery Channel program on you know some some recent advances in uh, uh, you know neuropsychology and neurology. Did and, you learn anything from the Discovery Channel? Yes, uh, computer graphics. Okay. More importantly, did it inspire you to go learn more? No, no. <laughs> I now I know everything I need to know having watched this uh, having watched this thing. So I'm going to lecture you about it for a few minutes. <laughs> All right, go for it. <laughs> and I suppose I was this much of a deep even before the internet, but uh, I, you know, it's given me more more fodder. It seems to make a difference to our to our uh, neurological development that we are embodied beings, right? That the uh, the development of the brain doesn't happen apart from the development of the body, but they're they're sort of like sensory experiences and kind of bodily experiences are what inform the brain in in this kind of in this sort of feedback loop. And this is, you know, I mean, this is very interesting that the um, you know, there could be some very like close to the hardware programming in that maternal instinct, that maternal uh, protective instinct to um, uh, that you know that can override kind of higher brain functions that uh, that that are that are programmed in. And this seems to be something that that happens in the um, that happens in people, right? They're not just. Uh, they're not just the sum total of their, you know, their kind of rational cognitive activity, their personality, their soul, whatever, is not just the sum total of uh, their rational cognitive activity. It seems to be the case, um, uh, you know, that, uh, that you are, in fact, the sum total of your experiences and of your specific experiences and their effect on your body. You don't think that that sort of thing that mothers have supernatural powers is kind of wishful thinking? That like somehow mothers have like a greater call to do the things that they do than like everybody else in the world. Like you don't think that that maybe is like a little bit of like disingenuous or like well, maybe think, not quite think, entirely uh, accurate. What do you what do you mean? By I don't. Well, Pete, I think it's what? Oh, like like a like a mother like everybody else is capable of having all of their priorities shoved aside by things like you know brainwashing and mind control but motherhood is like sacrosanct and can't be violated by like techniques of persuasion well, sure okay um, it's a little it's a little sentimental yes mm-hmm. uh absolutely i was actually more i was actually more talking about like sort of very primal experiences i mean you could say that like the maternal instinct or the paternal instinct to protect children is uh, maybe harder to eradicate than certain other kinds of i you know i think that you're 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 doing something that's politically convenient by talking about the paternal instinct but i don't think it's something that actually like 
um, tends to be part of the calculus in a meaningful way. I would never do like, something. I don't think he, Pete, when yeah. have you ever known me to do something that is politically uh, politically? Yeah. <laughs> I'm usually the guy offending fair enough, fair everyone. Enough. Yeah, fair enough, fair enough, fair enough. Um, yeah, no, okay, right. So I, I won't uh, pull my punch. I'll say – Well, go ahead. I, I, I won't pull my punch. I'll say, I'll say the maternal instinct that maybe it's, it's harder to, to eradicate probably because it's, it's more necessary to the survival of the species than, than other kinds of instincts. I mean, you know, perhaps not more, more necessary than the instinct to self-preservation, though in a lot of cases more necessary than the, the instinct to self-preservation. And you hear things all the time like, you know, uh, parents uh, lifting up cars to, like, save children trapped under them. Like, you know, the, the, right, and it's right. not metaphysical mumbo-jumbo. It's like a surge of adrenaline or, you know, whatever. Uh, yeah, yeah. Right. Um, energies but it you know it makes sense that that uh the nature would design us that way that is to say nature would select for um uh for the people who had the the uh, greatest ability to protect their young mm. but because at the same time there otherwise are otherwise nature yeah. would wipe out your young because they're very vulnerable and and incapable of protecting themselves well right but at the same time also um there have been periods in history where you know mothers have handed over a lot of the mothering responsibility to professionals and have not really done it themselves. I think we live in one of those areas now where you see that people are capable of like sort of handing their kids off and making sure somebody else takes care of them and not taking that all on themselves. Um, I just, I don't know. Something about it smacks like it's awfully Victorian. You know, that it's like, it's like something that we wanted to believe that sort of snuck into the scientific literature and a lot of exceptions get made for it. And I mean, I'm not, I'm just a little bit uneasy about it. I don't necessarily think it's false, but it just seems to like, just seems to be like not i mean because there are other instincts that are just as important as the mothering instinct to survival of the species like things like whether you're going to drink toxic waste or like you know whether you know your instinct to pee you know like when you're full your bladder is full like these things can all be conquered by the will um why is it that motherhood can't be conquered by the will um, the need to pee cannot be conquered by the will for <laughs> Josh. We, we were recording it. a podcast when rather went earlier <laughs> clearly <laughs> Um, fair, fair the, enough. Uh, Maybe I'm just playing devil's advocate here, saying that like, like I, this is also one of my big pet peeves for movies in general, where for some reason, because of the power of love, the mind control technology doesn't work, and that always pisses me off. Because it's like, why is love special? Love is not necessarily special. We want it to be special, but wow, why is it so special? So you must have a uh, you must have a real po- problem with the Harry Potter series. Yeah, oh, don't get me started. I haven't he, read it. He was <laughs> <laughs> where he was saved oh, yeah. as a child by the power of. Uh, uh, right. By the power Look, of love. The power of love is a curious thing. It'll make one man weep, another man sing. You know, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's true. I'm not sure that it actually has like the the power of magic. Yeah. So, and Pete, do you need uh, do you need money to ride this train? Uh, <laughs> I don't need a credit card. I can pay cash. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you uh, the the tickets cost a lot more when you buy them on board uh, for cash. So oh. it's better it's better to buy them at the machine uh, out in the station, yeah. or even to send away. Right on the website before you uh before you even start though in that case he'd have to use a credit card as well (laughs) mark anything else interesting from the grammys uh yeah a couple things actually i just learned um just recently that um for the category of best rap uh, slash sung uh, duet or or the collaboration i'm on a boat was nominated it didn't win Mm. but it was nominated i thought the world might have collapsed on itself if uh, I'm on a boat, had won a Grammy. Is that uh, really less than a year old? Apparently, yeah. I feel like that's been stuck in my head since the mid '90s. <laughs> <laughs> I know, really. It, it does have a timeless quality about it. By the way, if you're ever on a cruise ship, make sure to go to the party where they play that and watch a thousand people go insane. <laughs> <laughs> it was amazing. Like just the the people, drunken idiots, enjoying meta humor. It was glorious. <laughs> <laughs> when were you on a cruise? Uh, uh, August. Oh, I believe. got it. Got it. Got it. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was a thing to have done once. Were, were there like uh, otherwise stately, uh, portly, middle-aged people like loudly singing the curse words in the lyrics of that song? Well, I guess I qualify under all of those counts. <laughs> yeah. So uh, yeah, <laughs> it was at least one. <laughs> Thanks, Josh. Thanks for making that happen. 
<laughs> the other quick uh, Grammy update is for uh, notably for rap solo performance, DOA Death of Auto Tune by Jay Z won for best rap solo performance. So I don't, I, I don't, I wouldn't take that as the music industry's dig, like endorsing Jay Z's dig against Auto Tune. It's more just probably just thinking that was a good uh, rap song, but it is interesting to note that Jay Z's song "Death of Autotune" won when it, in a field of uh, Grammy nominees who use autotune left and right. I would say probably that I will upwards of ninety to ninety-five percent of all the tracks nominated for Grammys use autotune in some capacity. Maybe not to like the T Pain effect, but for the more subtle like vocal, um, just touch-up work, ninety to ninety-five percent. Well, that's daunting. There's I a, have to think about that for a bit. <laughs> there's a part of me that thinks that's bad, but then the other part of me thinks, well, now they're singing in tune. Right, which so apparently this is the other, another little good, right? Yeah, I another mean, little bit of, uh, of of Grammy gossip is that apparently Taylor Swift's uh, vocal performance this evening could have used some of that as well. Um, but I haven't heard it since well, obviously I am doing this podcast right now and listening well, this to you is, guys. I mean, this is the thing about this. Like our our ears are so assaulted with this technology now that we we have kind of forgotten what it's like to hear pop music where uh where the pitch is not dead on, mathematically dead on, right? And that a lot right. of the a lot of the artistry in singing you know, Sinatra was always just a hair under pitch, you know, and that like that was one of the cool things. That was like one of the things that right. made it very and, blue and like and and cool and and this like mathematical precision. I don't know. I think it 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 uh, well uh, here's, kind here's of impoverishes the, the impoverishes the soul of I, I would these performances. Yeah. yeah, I would say here's what the the proponents of of auto tune say. This is that back in the day. Um, they had to do multiple, multiple, multiple takes to get the audio track to sound just right. It would be a very time-consuming time and laborious process. And now, instead of doing that, they get the one take that is in one or three takes. Takes that combined are about 90% good. There's just these little warbles here and there. And Autotune takes care of it, so you don't have to do 20 takes. You just do three takes now. For God, God forbid our millionaire recording artist should have to do more than three takes of a no, no, song. No, 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 no. What it, what it allows to do, though, is for people who don't have, who aren't the millionaire recording artists and the more... Um, you know, cast-strapped ones to get a really polished, perfect product out there. When in the past, and the ones you know before AutoTune, it would take the you know the thirty takes to get the perfect audio track down. That's the argument there. I, 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 I for the most part, I buy that. But rather, I will concede to you um, that yes, I think it has taken some of that artistry well, out I'm of it. About, I will point I mean, to. I'm not talking about a. I'm talking about a professional at the top of their game. You know what I mean? I'm talking about a Sinatra, right? Where, where at that high, high level, part of the artistry was. I mean, though you know, he had access to probably the best recording. Uh, imagine someone recording like that now and getting, uh, getting. Imagine a star recording like that now and getting all the all the life just squeezed out of their, uh, squeezed out of their performance. I don't mean to. I don't mean to sentimentalize it. I and I guess as a you know, no, you're, occasional... abso- you're absolutely right. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, uh, as a, as an occasional musical performer, I I might be apt to sentimentalize it, but uh, no, I'm absolutely right. No, go on, Mark. <laughs> I, well, actually, I have an assignment for Mark. Yeah, it's homework. Night. I want you to take take an old it. Sinatra tune and like an old Bing Crosby tune and auto tune them and see what it sounds like. <laughs> well, you gotta you gotta be able to isolate the vocal track. Uh, Mark is a genius. <laughs> That's true. I have he no has, doubt that he, he has that. he has uh, downloaded the audio engineering achievements. Do, do yes. some Willie Nelson right. too. I'd love to hear you do some Willie Nelson if you're going to do that auto tune Willie Nelson. Lies <laughs> crying in the rain. <laughs> Sometimes I wander through the fields and lonely nights, waiting for your smile. It sounded like Kermit. Yeah. Uh, actually, that's probably what it would sound like. That's what Kermit is. He's, he's auto-tuned Nelson. <laughs> no, that's what um, the Carl Sagan auto-tune sounds like. Oh, sounds like okay. It sounds like Kermit the Frog mm. crossed with T-Pain. <laughs> I mean, you know what this reminds me of? This reminds me of something that Stokes has told, talked and I talked about around the time of the passing of Pavarotti. Uh, which, when Pavarotti died, Pavarotti was a very famous, remarkable opera singer. Um, you can sort of overly reduce and characterize Pavarotti's opera career as such. Phenomenally talented singer, had wonderful gifts, had wonderful pipes, was not the most dedicated or consistent 
opera singer was not the best sort of overall performer but if you in the because of the technology of cds he was far and away the most famous and ubiquitous opera singer because everybody would buy only one copy of each opera on cd and that one copy why not get the one time that Pavarotti really nailed it because that was the best time that it was and so it's an example of how the business of the production of music doesn't just affect the aesthetic from a standpoint of making it better or worse, it, it also shapes the things that we think of as great, and it shapes the playing field on which the musicians compete against each other. So, and it's not just like, oh, it would be natural if not for this. There have been lots of changes in the way that music is produced and consumed that affect what musicians we think are better or worse, independently of the fashions of thinking of quality and things like that. Um, so, you know, in the, back in the day, a singer like Pavarotti might not be nearly as famous because it, you know, the watching of opera was something that you did all the time. Um, or the, it was something that you had to travel a long distance to do, and if Pavarotti was sick and didn't sing, you'd be really pissed at him. Uh, you know what I mean? Um, so now it's like, well, okay, the challenge of singing, uh, you know, of artistic interpretation along those lines has been removed because of the commercial necessity of autotune. Maybe not necessity, but the commercial fact of autotune. What, how does that shape the singing landscape? What does that mean about what it takes to be a performer? That might mean that someone like Taylor Swift, who is a pretty weak singer, can be a, a much bigger star because she doesn't really need to sing on pitch all the time. Maybe it means that the days of people like Celine Dion, who are like vocal virtuosos uh, and yet kind of uncharismatic in certain ways, are, are numbered. Um, you know, maybe, maybe it's going to primarily have an effect on rap. Maybe none of this matters because recordings aren't going to make a lot of money anyway. I don't know. What do you guys think? Do you think that there's a future in the sort of thinking about autotune as something other than like a Roger Troutman Redux? Well, that's like actually a novelty this is kind of an interesting thing, like the idea that recordings aren't going to make that much money anyway. So who cares what they are? Because uh, the money is made in in live performance and merchandising. Okay, let's set merchandising aside because you can't autotune a shirt and think about the live performance, right? Um, the amount of technology that is mediating the so-called live, so-called performance. Right, it makes the performance less live in in a way, and it's more a product of it's more a thing that's engineered than kind of uh, done by um, you know done by a human and kind of communicated. Well, depending upon human. depending upon the budget and scope of the performance and the specific uh, person performing, yeah, right. I mean, it's well, not I mean, always the if case. we're gonna if we're gonna say that, does plugging guitar in? have that same effect well this is uh, okay so there you go it's i mean does using a microphone have that same effect does using stage lights or you know video screens or something like that have that that same effect that same effect and i guess there's like a continuum right between oh i don't know like someone sitting right across the room from you and playing a violin in a chamber concert right all the way to you know say the work of lady gaga uh which is a multimedia extravaganza of gargantuan proportions um, it's an extravagaga. <laughs> Here, I'll bring up. I'll bring up. An, I'll bring up another metaphorical point, which was that at one point I was trying to decide to buy a Christmas present from my sister, and I knew that she liked the SSX series of snowboarding video games, and so I wanted to decide which one to buy for her because there was SSX three and there was SSX Tricky, which was still purchasable but which was older. And I talked to one of my friends um, about it, and I was like, "Which one should I buy?" Because my friend had often said that SSX Tricky was a better game than SSX three overall. And the question is, well, if SSX Tricky is a better game then shouldn't I buy that one rather than SSX3? And it's like, well, no, you really should buy SSX3. Because, and, and the sort of, the, although we didn't really come out and say it, is that like, even though we say that the older way of doing it is better, we have to consider the metrics that we're using and, and like why, like why we would judge it on quality. Uh, you know, and I'd also, you know, admit that maybe some of these things that we may not like for emotional reasons are improvements. Uh, you know, maybe it is better to plug the guitar in. Maybe there isn't something that's a priori about music. Uh, you know what I mean? Um, I mean, there's there's the mathematics of it, and that's that's certainly prior to experience um, in certain ways. But I don't know. I don't know. I think maybe one of the it's good. One of the places where the auto tune could be a real detriment to music in general is the thing Mark was talking about. Instead of doing twenty takes, they're doing three. And I've listened to a little bit of sort of the, the Beatles studio sessions and just having performed music in my life. It's it's in that 18th take where, you know, the producer rushes in and yells more cowbell. Yeah. Like, Wait, that, you know, that's a, good, that's a mean, good thing or a bad thing? Well, I know it's a good thing because it's, it's, it's music evolves. The creative process, especially with a band or any group of people, 
you know, it gets better through discussion and through trying new things. And, you know, maybe it's not till take 17 that the bass player realizes, oh, it should really be like this. And that becomes the hook that becomes the great song. Right. That is to say uh, there's you know, a process. There is that, you know, by truncating that process with autotune, you might be missing out on some really great stuff. Or, yeah, by taking technological not, shortcuts it, of any kind, it's, it, the, it's not an unmixed blessing a lot of the time. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, th- I think in particular in a collaborative effort like music, I think on a, uh, for example, solo pursuit like writing, you can write so much faster and save and copy and paste. I think it's actually improved writing uh, on the whole. Um, certainly mine. Uh, that's debatable, I guess. But the in a collaborative Josh, thing, I mean, there music, are people who would there are people who would who would make a counter argument to that and say that like the the. Uh, the way that writing by hand forces you to slow down disciplines your mind uh, to write better and makes you, you know, makes you a greater craftsman in, uh, in, in that thing. Um, now, maybe that is outweighed by the added convenience, but I mean, uh, uh, what we're talking about essentially is that there's a balance point or that there's a, there's a, um, there's a continuum on the trade-off of convenience for what? Artistry. Right, and that um, I agree, but your continued use of the word "continuum" makes it difficult for me to take an extreme position that will create <laughs> conversation and debate. You know, Josh, there's a there's a continuum of positions from the least to the most extreme. <laughs> and you know, several up. of our several of our listeners uh, take uh, take those off. So, if you want to, uh, if you want to participate in the podcast, um, uh, <laughs> better than the. Um, if you want to uh, participate in the podcast more so than the uh, the people in the live chat room who have been talking about uh, African literature, English literature, Harry Potter, Twilight, Twilight, um, audiobooks, Doctor and, Who. Um, Doctor Who, yeah, Colbert, right. And then there was this woman who came in, read three lines of it, and uh, promptly said she was in the wrong place. Yeah, well, a lot of people, <laughs> uh, I think that was that was well recognized on her part. <laughs> a lot of people use uh, Ustream for applications less savory uh, than this one, um, but we're we're gonna we're gonna put the link to this out. If you, but if you want to participate and take a position anywhere along the continuum of posi- po- um, positions, you know what to. Do. Preferably at one end, <laughs> so that we can disagree with you. Um, exactly. You know what to do. Uh, email us at podcast at overthinking dot com. Call us at two zero three two eight five six four zero one. That's two zero three two eight five six four zero one. Or use the uh, the comments on the show notes or the contact form on the site. What site is that? You ask. Well, it's overthinkingit.com, dot com, where you can visit us during the week. And where we subject the popular culture to a continuum of scrutiny. <laughs> no, I did To a level it probably, of scrutiny. It, it probably, it probably doesn't, doesn't. It probably doesn't deserve. Deserve. So was that just a disaster with the live chat room? Because I was distracted the whole time. <laughs>